Good morning again. If you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 12. Okay, Luke chapter 12. Over the last few weeks, we've been making our way through chapter 12 and noting a series of warnings that Jesus had for his disciples. Jesus knew and understood that his disciples were in real danger. Uh, There was the danger presented by the religious elite and their accusations and their threats against Jesus and his followers. And then there was the danger presented by the great multitudes who were really, they were ready to crown Jesus as king and have him lead a rebellion against Roman opposition. And both groups presented a real danger to the disciples, a danger to compromise, a danger to allow what others say and think to sway them from the truths that Jesus had been pouring into them. He first warned his disciples of hypocrisy, telling them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And really, hypocrisy simply amounts to pretending to be something that you really aren't. And it can come in various forms. The disciples could pretend to not be followers of Jesus in order to protect themselves from the attacks of the religious elite. Or the disciples could pretend to be more than what they were and accept the praise and adulation of the multitudes and allow themselves to be swayed by the uh, praise and applause of man. Then Jesus warned his disciples about covetousness. He told his disciples, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And we looked at the sin of covetousness and we noted how it dealt with more than just material goods. We noted how we can covet all sorts of things. We can covet people and relationships. We can covet um, power and prominence and position and possessions. Anytime that we are not satisfied with God and his provision and we go searching after more, we are revealing a heart of covetousness. Covetousness is simply a need and a desire to have more than what you have been given. It is a greedy desire to gain more than what God has supplied. Jesus warned his disciples about covetousness, the problems that come with only focusing upon temporal, earthly passions and endeavors without ever considering the eternal, heavenly treasures and investments. Now, in our portion of Scripture this morning, Jesus is going to issue yet another warning to his disciples. This time it will be a warning about worry and anxiety. Our text this morning will be Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. And the title of our message, in keeping with the trend of late, will be, Beware of Worry. Beware of Worry. Now, when I say beware of worry, I'm not saying that we need to worry about worrying, okay? Uh, The idea is that we are cognitive, we are mindful of the effects that worry can have upon us. We don't allow ourselves to be plagued by worry. To beware, it simply means to be watchful, to be mindful, to pay attention to or to guard ourselves against something. We want to be mindful of the problems associated with worry and we want to guard ourselves against them. We don't let it consume us. We don't let it lead us into sin. Because church family, worrying is a sin, okay? 
Worrying is a failure to trust God and his goodness and or it is a failure to believe what he has told us and promised to us. It is evidence of a lack of faith. And as Romans 14 puts it, whatever is not from faith is sin. And so let's go ahead. We'll dive into our text for us this morning. I'm going to read from my Bible. I encourage you all to follow along in your own Bible. Will you all please rise in honor of God and his word? Again, our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. In our text, Jesus is continuing to address his disciples amongst all the multitudes surrounding them, and he states the following in verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows what you need, excuse me, that you need these things. Verse 31, But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity to open up your word and allow your word to speak to us, to mold us and shape us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And I do hope and pray, Lord, that as we've gathered here, Lord, that as we've opened up your word, that we would be open to all your word has to say to us. Lord, give us open minds, open ears, open eyes, and an open heart to receive all that your spirit desires to show us, all your desire, a spirit desires to teach us. And Lord, I pray that we would be teachable today. Lord, I pray that we would be uh, yielded to the work of your Holy Spirit. We lift this time of study to you. We ask for your Holy Spirit to fulfill the promise of your word, that your Holy Spirit might lead us in all truth. And so, Lord, we give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Jesus' words in our text this morning begin with the word, therefore. And Jesus states, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. And anytime we come across the word therefore, we must always uh, realize that it is connecting to something that was just stated previously. And so we need to look back briefly at our text from last week to understand the transition Jesus uses to our text for this week. Last week, we concluded our study by looking at Jesus's description of what the product of covetousness is, how covetousness makes us play the part of the fool that he described in the parable of the rich fool. 
The man in the parable was so consumed with building up bigger, better barns to store all his bounty that he failed to make any plans or considerations for the eternal. Everything that he had lived for was all for naught. His vast mounds of crops and goods would do him absolutely no good when it came to his eternal standing before the Lord. And Jesus warned in verse 21, So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The exhortation at the end of Jesus' warning about covetousness was to be rich towards God and to focus upon laying up treasures for ourselves in heaven rather than on earth. And now Jesus transitions to the topic of worry. And believe it or not, these ideas are connected. Jesus connects his teaching and warning against covetousness and greed with his teaching on anxiety and worry because both deal with material goods and possessions. Covetousness and greed can never get enough. On the other hand, worry is afraid it will never have enough. The parable Jesus just spoke seemed to be directed towards those who were rich, where in this section, it seems to be addressing those who were poor or who had very little. The rich landowner in the parable, he struggled with covetousness because he had too much. The disciples, on the other hand, could be tempted to worry and fret because they feared they had too little. You see, both were problems. Both were dangerous. Both could keep us from God's best for us. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to address this matter of worry and anxiety connected with the idea of not having much. Now, for those of you who like to take notes and outline our text, I've taken the liberty of breaking up our text into three parts. The first part deals with some commands regarding worry in verse 22. Okay, we're going to note some commands regarding worry. The second part, and really the heart of our teaching this morning, is going to deal with uh, considerations about worry. And I'm going to forewarn you ahead of time. If you're one that likes to write everything that comes up on that TV screen, get ready, okay? Because there's a lot of things that we pull out, okay? And the third part, it deals with a contemplation on worry in verse 34. And so let's take a look at our opening verse again as we note some commands regarding worry. Read verse 22 again with me. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. We'll stop right there. Jesus, after encouraging his disciples to be rich toward God, he immediately addresses the sin of worry. And this, as we've noted, would be a natural transition. It would be instinctive for the disciples to immediately think of how difficult it would be uh, to be rich toward God when they don't have much in the first place. We must remember that they had given up their entire livelihood to follow after Jesus. How could they afford to be rich toward God? They barely had enough for themselves. Those who don't have much, they can fall into the trap of worrying about not having enough for themselves. And in so doing, they fall into the same trap as the rich fool who was not rich toward God. The rich fool was not rich toward God because he was too concerned about himself and building his own kingdom. But the poor can fall into the same temptation to not be rich toward God because he also is too concerned about himself. He's concerned that if he's rich toward God, well, there won't be enough left over for himself. 
both the rich and the poor can fall into the same trap of not being rich toward God because they are both focused upon themselves. So Jesus commands his disciples here, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. The verb worry is written in the present active imperative with a negative particle. Some of you might be thinking, well, what does that mean? Okay, uh, let me explain. Okay, whenever a verb is written in the present imperative with a negative particle, it usually implies a command to stop an act that's already in process, something that's already in progress. You're doing something and he's commanding you not to do it, to stop doing it. Okay, Jesus knew what these guys were thinking when he told them about being rich toward God and how their minds immediately went to worrying about how they could be rich toward God and still have some leftover for themselves. Jesus immediately responded to his disciples, telling them, stop worrying about what they were going to eat and what they were going to wear. He knew that it was what they were thinking. You see, the disciples were thinking, well, if I'm rich toward God, how will I have enough to you know, feed myself? Or how will I have enough to clothe my clothe myself. Jesus commanded them to stop thinking that way, to stop worrying about their life. In fact, Jesus Jesus gives four imperatives that are in the present form with the negative particle in our text today. Here in verse 22, he states, do not worry about your life. In verse 29, uh, he states, do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink. He follows that up with another command, not to have an anxious mind at the end of verse 29. And then he tops it off by saying, do not fear little flock in verse 32. Each of these imperatives involve Jesus telling his disciples to stop doing something they were already doing. They were worried about their life, what they would eat and drink. They were seeking after those things like food and drink. They were having an anxious mind and they were afraid of not having enough. This command that Jesus gave to his disciples here in verse 22 is a command that still applies to all of his followers even today. We are not to worry about the things of this life. Philippians chapter 4 states, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We are not to worry about anything. Instead, we are to pray to God with thanksgiving for his bountiful provision, and let him know what's upon our hearts, and then we let the peace of God take over. Knowing and trusting that as we lift things to the Lord, He is more than able to provide for all of our needs. And so, we need not worry. We need not fret or be anxious. We can have peace in our hearts, a peace that surpasses all understanding, a peace that guards our hearts and minds against any doubts or worries or fears. Well, From here, Jesus is going to give us a few things to ponder when it comes to the topic of worry and why we are not to worry. So let's turn to this next part of our study dealing with considerations about worry. As we note, several things Jesus would have us to consider when it comes to the topic of worry and worrying. Let's begin with the first thing Jesus brings up. It's in verses 23 and 24. 
Jesus says, life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? We'll pause right there. The first thing Jesus brings up for us to consider has to do with the fact that life is so much more than food, and the body is more than clothing. We have to understand something important during this day regarding wealth. Ancient sources of wealth could usually be separated into one of three different categories. Okay, these were uh, there was the weight of precious metals or jewels, uh, gold and silver and diamonds and rubies and and whatnot. There was uh, expensive clothing made with fine threads, costly dyes, and usually adorned with those precious metals and jewels. And then last of all, there was food stores. Okay, If you had a bunch of crops and food storage, you were considered rich. And so when Jesus says life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. He's speaking about, a f- about forms of wealth and prosperity, food storages and fancy clothes. Life is more than simply having storehouses of food to eat, like the rich fool in the parable that we studied last week. Life is more than having nice clothes to wear. Last week, before sharing the parable of the rich fool and his storehouses of food, he warned the disciples, telling them, one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And in like manner, he states again here today, life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. The meaning and purpose of life is so much more than simply gathering food to live off of or having clothes to wear. You know, in today's world and today's day we speak of making a living okay but making a living providing enough for you to live off of is not what life is all about it is so much more you see we can get caught up in life making a living that we forget to make a life that's worth living don't let yourself be trapped into the thinking that the meaning and purpose of life is simply to provide for you and yours. God's purpose for our lives is so much more than gathering things to satisfy our own selves. You know, King Solomon, he was the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. He sought for the meaning and purpose of life. King Solomon had wealth beyond measure. He had wisdom beyond any man of his times or ours. He had hundreds of women palaces and gardens, the best food and wine, and every form of entertainment imaginable. He wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10, that whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. And yet, his summary of it all was that it was all vanity, that it was all meaningless. There was no satisfaction. There was no fulfillment in any of those things. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, is what he would proclaim. At the end of his record, King Solomon proclaimed the following, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. You see, fearing God, it speaks of having an awe and a reverence for the Lord. Deuteronomy states, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? 
You see, the meaning and purpose of our lives is to know God, to serve Him, and to glorify Him. And the way that we know God is to know the Son. Jesus told His disciples, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. And from now on you know Him and have seen Him. Jesus was explaining to His disciples that since they had known Jesus, they knew the Father. For the Son is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son. Entering into a loving relationship with Jesus, it allows us to live our lives to the fullest, to know God and to glorify Him. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. You see, the abundant life is found in Jesus Christ and entering into a loving relationship with Him, restoring our fellowship with the Father, and glorifying Him in all that we do. This is the meaning and purpose of life, to find joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in a loving relationship with God, to know Him, to serve Him, to glorify and enjoy Him for all of eternity. That is what life is all about. It is not about gathering stuff. Now, in support of this statement regarding life being more than gathering food, Jesus tells his disciples to consider the ravens. The ravens do not sow nor reap like humans do. They do not have the capacity to do such things, nor do they have storehouses or barns to store up all their goods like humans do. And yet, God feeds them. God makes sure that the ravens do not go without. He provides for their need and then some. And I love what Jesus does here in using the raven as an example. You see, previously Jesus spoke of the value of man's life in comparison to sparrows. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus said, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus told the disciples they were more valuable than many sparrows. Now, sparrows were small, uh, insignificant birds. It was as if Jesus was saying, even if you think your life is small and, and insignificant, God still sees value in you. Now, the sparrow was considered a clean bird. And it is actually believed to be the same small birds that were used in the purification process of the lepers that's detailed for us in Leviticus chapter 14. Uh, There in verse 4, it talks about how you take two small birds, living clean birds, and it's believed to be these sparrows uh, were an acceptable form uh, for this purification process. But here, Jesus speaks of the value of a man's life in relation to the ravens. Ravens were unclean birds, okay? In fact, they were regarded as an abomination amongst other birds. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 13 tells us that they were an abomination. They were not to eat uh, eat them at all. Uh, Leviticus 11 states that every raven after its kind was an abomination. Even though they were considered unclean and an abomination, God still cared for them. God still makes sure that they are fed. And Even above that, God even used the ravens for his glory and his purposes. You guys may know the account of Elijah, uh, the Tishbite, the prophet. He used ravens to feed Elijah the prophet bread and meat every morning and evening as he waited upon the Lord. Again, it's as if Jesus was saying, 
even if you think your life is too dirty, okay, that you're unclean. Perhaps you even think God looks upon you as an abomination, something just detestable. Know that God sees great value in you. Know that God can still use you, that God has a purpose for your life, that your life has meaning in God's eyes. The truth of the matter is that those who struggle with worry often do so because of their own low estimation of their own value before God. People don't understand the great love and care God has for them. They cannot fathom to think that the God of all the universe would care so much about them and have His thoughts upon them. And so they fall into the trap of worrying about things of this life. But we need to understand the magnitude of God's love for us, the value that He has placed on each of our lives. God loves us so much that He willingly sent His only Son to die a brutal death upon a torturous cross that we may have fellowship with Him. There is nothing greater than God's love for us, and there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. Paul writes in Romans, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church family, my exhortation to you this morning is do not underestimate God's love for you and the value that He places upon your life. You are special to Him. More special than you could probably ever comprehend. Let's continue in our text. We'll note a few more considerations Jesus has for us in verses 25 through 28. Follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. It says, And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If if then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? The next major consideration Jesus would have us to consider is in regard to the fact that worrying accomplishes absolutely nothing that's beneficial. Okay? Jesus asked a question here about worry, wondering if by worrying, any of them were able to add one cubit to their stature. Now, some of your translations may read a single hour to your life or to his life. The meaning is basically the same. A cubit is about 18 inches. The question is, if you are concerned about being short or vertically challenged, okay, as some in my life like to talk about, okay, um, If you are vertically challenged, okay, could you add to your stature 18 inches by worrying about it? The obvious answer is no, of course not. No amount of worrying is going to allow you to add 18 inches to your height, not even one inch, okay? It's not going to change. Your height is beyond your control. Worrying about it isn't going to change anything. And the same is true of our lives, okay? Worrying about our lives uh, and the length of our lives. It won't add a single hour to our lives. And so what's the point? It's foolishness to worry about things that are beyond our control. Jesus then rationalizes that if we aren't able to do the least of these things, like adding height to our stature or time to our lives, why worry in the first place? 
And why worry about all these other things? You see, worrying does not add anything to our lives, but it can take away from our lives. The detriment that worry can do is seen even in the root of the Greek word for worry. The word worry comes from the Greek word meris, which literally means a part, and merizo, which means to divide or part. The picture is that worrying literally tears us apart. It divides our focus and attention upon things that are worthless and meaningless, upon things that we have absolutely no control over. Worry has a terrible impact upon our overall health and well-being. Research actually shows that stress from worrying, it deteriorates our immune system. People under constant or high stress, they show lower T-cell counts essential for immune response. Stress has a definite effect on fertility. Prolonged stress has been shown to affect the brain, making a person less able to respond to future stress. And stress is also related to sudden heart failure. Stress is one of the greatest contributors to disease and poor health. Instead of adding to our life, worry takes away from our life. It actually brings harm to our physical, emotional, and our spiritual well-being. Jesus, once again, he has another example for us to consider. He says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon and all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. When Jesus mentions how the lilies neither toil nor spin, he's alluding to the toiling and, and spinning we do as humans and making for ourselves uh, we spin yarn and we make cloth. That's we don't do. Well, textiles do it today, but most of us don't. But back in the day, you would take it, you'd spin uh, fibers together to create yarn. And so he's talking about um, making for ourselves fancy clothing, another aspect of seeking after wealth and prosperity. The lilies don't need to toil and sweat and spend their days adorning themselves with beauty. God makes them that way naturally. God clothes the lilies with beauty, adorning them with a more fanciful splendor than Solomon ever had in all of his glory. Jesus concludes once again, arguing from the point of the lesser to the greater. If then God so clothes the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? The implication is so easy for us to see. If God sees to it to clothe and adorn the lilies and the grass which are here today and gone tomorrow, can't we trust Him to clothe us, seeing as how much more valuable we are to Him than, than flowers and grass? The answer is, of course we can. Jesus, at the very end of this example, He really hits home at the heart of the matter when here he comes, when it comes to worry. Excuse me, It is a matter of faith. Jesus referred to his disciples as you of little faith. And isn't that what it really boils down to when we worry? It's us not putting our trust and our faith in God to take care of us, to provide for us. When God says to be rich toward God, and we begin to worry about if it doing so would leave us with anything for ourselves, we are showing a lack of faith in God to provide for us. Do we have enough faith in the Lord, to say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you to provide. I'm going to put you first and foremost in my life. I'm going to give you 
Okay, not the leftovers, Lord. I'm going to give you the first fruits. I'm going to give my entire life to you and trust you to see me through. I'm going to live by faith and not by sight. I'm going to trust that you care for me, that you love me more than I can imagine, that you are more than capable of providing my every need and that my life has great value in your eyes. Can we say that? Okay, do we have that kind of faith? Faith to put God first, to make God and living for Him our priority. Church family, I pray that we do. I pray that we do. And this leads us to the next thing that Jesus would have us to consider. Read with me verses 29 through 31. He says, And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows what you need knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Here Jesus commands us not to seek after things of this world, things like what we are to eat and what we're to drink. He tells us not to have an anxious mind, or to, better yet, stop having an anxious mind. The word anxious in the Greek here, it literally means to be suspended in air. Uh, but the connotation is that having an anxious, excuse me, anxious mind is like hanging in the air, being blown back and forth by various winds. It speaks of having a doubtful mind, of fluctuating back and forth. Now, Jesus gives us two very important reasons for why we must stop having an anxious mind. One reason is that Jesus states, for all these things the nations of the world seek after. You see, when we seek after the things of this world and we have an anxious mind waffling back and forth, we end up looking and acting just like the world. God has called us to be different from this world. He has called us to be set apart As believers in the Lord, we should be salt and light to the world around us. Our lives should look different from the lives of those who are without the Lord. How can we witness to a lost world and encourage them to put faith in Jesus Christ Christ, if we ourselves are doubting God and worrying? You see, it is inconsistent for us to preach faith and then not practice it by constantly worrying. And so we are called to be set apart. And when we worry and we are having an anxious mind, we're acting just like the world. The second reason Jesus gives for why we must stop having an anxious mind is because our Father knows what our needs are. And I love how Jesus makes it extra personal here. This isn't just the Father, or it isn't my Father. Oftentimes Jesus would refer to the Father, he'd say, my Father. But this is your Father. Jesus alludes to our personal relationship with the Father as reason for why we need not worry or have an anxious mind. Our Father in heaven knows exactly what we need. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Our Father knows what we need better than we know what we need. Okay, He knows our needs before we even speak them into words. We think... We think we know what we need. Hey, oftentimes I've prayed to the Lord, telling Him of my needs, only to have Him basically say, no, you don't need that. You need this. 
which is usually followed up with me saying, I don't think I need that, Lord, you know. And um, he eventually gets it through my thick skull. And I come around to his side and I finally realize, you know what, Lord? You were right. I did need that. And uh, I, I was reluctant to accept that. I don't know if anybody else here can relate. Anybody else have? No, I'm the only one, right? Okay. Our Father knows what our needs are. He knows our needs better than we know our needs. We think we know what we need, but our Father knows exactly what we need, and we can trust Him to provide our every need. Jesus tells us in verse 31 that rather than seeking after the things of this world, that we should instead seek first or seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. The choice to seek the kingdom of God is the fundamental choice everyone makes when they first repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. However, every day after that choice, our Christian life will either reinforce that decision or it will deny that decision. Seeking the kingdom is not a one-time thing but a daily habitual lifestyle where we are constantly seeking the Lord, His kingdom and His glory. To seek the kingdom of God means to submit to God's sovereignty today, to work for the future coming of His kingdom, to represent God here and now and to seek His rule in our hearts each and every day. Seeking the kingdom is a matter of priorities. What will we put first in our lives? What will be most important to us Jesus promises here that if we seek the kingdom of God, if we make that our priority, our pursuit, then we can be confident that God will take care of us. He said all these things, our basic needs, food, drink, clothing, whatever else we need shall be added to you. We don't have to go searching after the things this world's preoccupied with. We can focus upon seeking the kingdom of God and trust that God will give us everything that we have need of. Last week, I mentioned the promise of Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, and I'm going to repeat it again this morning. It states that my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God promises to take care of our needs, to supply our need. When we have our priorities right, when we seek God's kingdom, kingdom, putting it at the forefront of our lives, we can be sure that God will take care of all of our needs. We may, we may not become rich with the things of this world, but we will not lack what we need. King David, the sweet psalmist, he writes, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging bread. He instructs in Psalm 37 verse 4, Delight ourselves also in the Lord, and he shall give us the desires of our hearts. May our priority and focus be upon the Lord as he and to trust that he will take care of us. Let's continue in our text. We'll note a few more things Jesus would have for us to consider when it comes to worry. Read verses 32 and 33 with me. It says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. We'll stop right there. Jesus gives another command here telling his disciples, do not fear. The idea is that the disciples were to stop being afraid. They were living in fear and they needed to stop it. Jesus referred to his disciples as a little flock, meaning that they were like a a small group of sheep. Sheep are 
are considered somewhat helpless on their own, and they are often very skittish. Um, they are afraid of a lot of things, okay, like unexpected or loud noises, dark or shadowed spaces, and anything that could vaguely be considered a predator or a threat. I was looking this up. It's quite interesting. They actually have a hormone that uh, is triggered when they sense any sort of danger or fear, and they're very, very skittish, and it just causes them to panic and freak out, okay? But I want you guys to realize something here. Connected to the idea of a flock is the idea of having a shepherd. That is actually what the word literally refers to. The word flock in the Greek is poimnion, and it comes from the noun poimen, which means shepherd, one who tends herds or flocks. The disciples may have been a small group of defenseless sheep, unable to protect themselves, unable to provide for themselves, but that was okay. They need not fear because they had a shepherd. They had one who would tend to their needs and care for them and protect them from the attacks of the enemy. They had the good shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he is he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling. He does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The disciples need not fear, for Jesus was their shepherd, and he would give his life to make sure their greatest need was met, the need for the forgiveness of their sins, and the need for a right standing before the Lord in church family. Jesus did that for his disciples, and he did that for you and me as well. He laid down his life for us to provide us our greatest need. But not only did they have the good shepherd, Jesus also states how it is the Father's good pleasure to give them the kingdom. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, not only do we become children of the Lord, but also heirs. Romans chapter 8 states how the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance awaiting us in heaven, an eternal reward that can never be lost and never be taken from us. And it is the Father's delight, okay? It is His good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Jesus is drawing His disciples' attention towards the eternal, getting them to realize that the most important things in this life are preparing ourselves for and living for what is to come after this life. That is why Jesus follows this up with a command to sell what the disciples had and give alms. They were to provide themselves money bags that were fit for God's future kingdom. Money bags that would not grow old, treasures that would not fail, nor would there be any worry of theft or moth destroying. You see, the treasures of this world, the things of this world that this world seeks after, they do grow old. You see, the latest and the greatest is only the latest and greatest for so long before it gets replaced by something new. This world is constantly in pursuit of things that will grow old and wear out. They not only grow old, but they often fail us. They run out. 
They can easily be exhausted. Fortunes are lost every single day by things often outside of your own control. The market fluctuates up and down constantly. Also, the treasures of this earth, they can easily be stolen away from us. You can buy a nice new car or a nice new bike or a new phone and someone can come along and take a fancy to your new things, steal them right out from under you and you're left with nothing. Jesus also mentioned moths destroying our treasures. This, of course, was referring to the fancy clothes that people sought after. Those clothes can be destroyed by moths. Today, our treasures can be destroyed by other things of nature. Fires, earthquakes, floods, natural disasters can come along, sweep away every last bit of earthly treasure and possession that we have. The things of this world are temporary. We need to have a light touch on them. We need to be willing to give them up so that we may pursue things that will last, things that are eternal, things that won't grow old, things that won't fail us, things that can't be stolen away from us, things that can't be wiped away. We need to be laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And this leads us to the final part of our study, a contemplation on worry. Read verse 34 with me and we'll wrap this all up. Verse 34 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus gives one final major thought here. Why is it so important that we have a light touch on the things of this world and focus upon the eternal? Because where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. God wants our hearts. He wants our hearts to be set on the eternal, set on His kingdom, and He knows that wherever our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. Whatever we value most, whatever we think about most, whatever we spend the most time and energy upon, that is where our hearts will be. Church family, we need to take some time to reflect upon where our heart is at. And the main question we must ask ourselves is, where is our heart? If our hearts are fixed on the temporal constantly changing things of this world, then we will inevitably always be worried. But if we are fixed on the eternal, never-changing kingdom of God, then God's peace will guard our hearts and minds and we will not need to worry. We can be confident that God sees our needs, that God knows our needs, and that God's more than capable of meeting our needs. And we can simply focus upon living for His glory and the joy of having a right standing with the Lord. Church family, where is your heart at today? This morning, we are going to take a few minutes to participate in observing the Lord's Supper. This is something that we do as a church family on the first Sunday of the month, and I think it extra special that today our final point is about searching our hearts and identifying where our hearts are at, for that is part of what communion and observing the Lord's Supper is all about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks of the institution of the Lord's Supper and how he received from the Lord Jesus these instructions regarding partaking of communion. And he writes in verse 28, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You see, before we come to the table and partake of the bread and the cup, Paul states that we are first to examine ourselves. Communion is a time of reflection, 
a time to contemplate where we are in our walk with the Lord. And as the worship team comes forward and the ushers prepare to distribute the communion elements, I want to encourage you all this morning to take a few moments to consider the question of where your heart is at. Is your heart focused upon the temporal things of this world? Or are we living for something and someone far greater? Is our heart in heaven? Is our heart focused upon the eternal in his kingdom? Or have we allowed our hearts to be consumed with things that really just don't matter? Things of this life that will never satisfy. And as you contemplate those questions, I want to, I want you to be reminded of what Christ did for you. I want you to remember how he went to the cross for you, how his body was broken for you, how his blood was shed for you, all so that we may become partakers of him, with him of God's glorious kingdom. We're going to distribute the elements, and as you receive them, hey, I want you to go ahead and hold on to them. Okay? And then after a few minutes, I'll come back up here and lead us in partaking of the elements together. So we're going to spend some time with the Lord, examining our hearts and remembering what He has done for us. Let's go to the Lord.
Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, he gave them uh, instructions for the institution of the Lord's Supper, how the church was to partake of communion. It was a a divine revelation that uh, God, Jesus, had given to Paul. And he records for us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread. In verse 25, he continues, he says, In the same manner, he, referring to Jesus, also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's partake of the blood, the cup together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ for his broken body and his shed blood that gives to us an opportunity to have fellowship with you. Lord, we know that it is only through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that this opportunity is granted to us. And so we are ever mindful and ever thankful for the work of the cross. And Lord, as we consider... um, and contemplate uh, this teaching upon worry and where our heart is at, Lord. I hope and I pray that our hearts are with you, that our hearts' focus and attention is upon you and in the eternal and the things of your kingdom. But Lord, I also realize and I, and I thank you that if after today's portion of Scripture, there may be some of us who are just feeling like, man, we have wandered, we have strayed, we've kind of gotten off course, Lord. I'm so thankful and grateful that your grace is there to welcome us back. 
And Lord, that we can come to you and just confess those things, our shortcomings, and know that you love us, that you care for us. Lord, that you see great value in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that we would come to you, that we would surrender our all to you, that we would put you first and foremost in all that we say and do. May you be honored. May you be glorified in our lives. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.